0: Is up front on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bunganyi. Thank you so much for joining us today. International humanitarian organizations and local civil society organizations in Sudan are calling for an end to the fighting in the country as they warn that the conflict is taking on ethnic dimensions.
1: Originally a war between two generals and now it is evolving into a civil war.
0: Sama Salman is a Sudanese-American activist. She joins me in studio to, to talk about some of the ways the international community can help bring an end to the conflict. And a new report says that weakening the used clothing
2: sector in the East African community would negatively impact the local economy. Jobs of many different kinds, jobs in the marketplaces, jobs in warehouses, jobs in distribution of the goods, jobs in terms of um, running retail spaces, an enormous number of jobs.
0: Professor Patrick Damon is the author of the report commissioned by the Mitumba Association of Kenya. But first, as always, let's hear from you, our listeners. We asked the question, do you believe in the fairness of your justice system? This is what you had to say. It, it works entirely, it works to, to, to those who are, who are powerful. Uh, because uh, when you look at uh, somebody who is poor, and he um, has been taken to the court. Not be able to hire a lawyer. Um, he loses the case and then he is detained. While um, somebody um, who is rich, somebody who is powerful, um, a politician, he has a lawyer and then he escapes. Probably um, imprisonment.
2: In most cases, the law has favored those who are rich and those who in government.
1: Before the law,
0: I believe each and every person is equal. But maybe what matters is treatment. Sometimes the agents of law. Or those law enforcers sometimes seem to favor those maybe who are rich but before the law we are all equal but those maybe to enforce the law are those that are corrupt One, two, three, hey. many thanks to all of you for your opinions this is Upfront on the voice of america i'm jackson Bungani. In Sudan, fighting continues between the military and the paramilitary force known as the Rapid Support Forces. Reports said that since the outbreak of the conflict in April, more than 3,000 people have been killed, while more than 2.6 million people have been internally displaced. Thousands of others have fled to neighboring countries. This weekend, representatives of Sudan's warring factions arrived in Saudi Arabia's city of Jeddah to resume talks aimed at ending the conflict. Previous talks were suspended by both sides in early June after numerous ceasefire violations. And Samar Salman is a Sudanese strategic analyst and president of the organization, the U.S. Educated Sudanese Association. She joins me in studio to talk about the dynamics behind the conflict, the major players involved and the role that the international community can play in helping bring an end to the conflict.
1: Jackson, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Unfortunately, today is day 88 of a horrific war in Sudan, which was uh, originally a war between two generals, and now it is evolving into a civil war. Uh, The war is between the commander of the Sudanese Armed Forces. His name is General Abdel Fattah Al-Burhan, And the second party, the second belligerent, is uh, named General Mohammed Hamdan Degalo. His nickname is General Hemiti and he is the commander of a paramilitary force called the RSF, which stands for the Rapid Support Forces. So he's basically what you would call a militia, but he's an extremely large militia. And he's become so large and so financially independent that he's now challenging uh, the regular army of Sudan. Now, these two generals are fighting basically for three reasons. Mm. One, for political control of the center, of the central government of Khartoum. So... General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan believes that he is the rightful successor of General Omar al-Bashir, but so does General Hamiti and uh, General Burhan comes from the institution of the Sudanese army mm. whereas Hemiti is actually a very interesting case he's actually more like the private army or
0: the, the Wagner personal, of Sudan the Wagner
1: of Sudan, <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it is, he's yeah. a personal army, the private army of Sudan Hemiti uh, is able to challenge mm. the the established regular army,
0: when you talk about
1: national H- army of Sudan
0: when you talk about economic empires, what what do you mean? How, what, what, what empire does Hamiti control?
1: Well, so, okay, so I said the first reason, so that's a fantastic question. It's mm. really important. The first reason that they're fighting is for political control of Sudan. Mm. The second reason they're fighting is to protect their economic empires. And what that really means is this. Jointly, both General Burhan and General Hamiti control 85% of Sudan's economy jointly they they control 85% wow. of Sudan's economy they control they they control the gold mines they control uh, the, the uranium, mm. they control the oil, they control the diamonds, all of the mining and all of the minerals, and then they control most of the agricultural schemes. And they control most of the uh the army has a, the army and, and the paramilitary both have a lot of peristatal companies. Mm. So they have a, a a huge network of companies that they control and they can they take and the they profits exploit off these resources and yeah. And, exactly and, and trade in and they trade in strategic commodities, agricultural commodities. They have their own military manufacturing factories wow. where they assemble weapons. So you can imagine they're really both controlling Sudan's entire economy. And so oh, both absolutely. of them are
0: dug in and they they're have healed. the resources. Yes. So what does this mean for the Sudanese people?
1: Well, there's also a third issue. a okay. third problem mm. is that you have, they're fighting for political control. They're fighting for economic, economic control. control. And the third one is they're fighting to escape accountability oh. and this is what we see sometimes in dictators or autocrats who have committed horrible war crimes
0: and refuse to leave power and
1: refuse to leave power and are afraid that if they leave power they'll be held accountable there will
0: be retribution or be yeah, absolutely yeah.
1: and and they are both extensions of Omar al-Bashir's regime they both participated in the Darfur ethnic cleansing and genocide of 2003 to 2005 mm. so you can imagine if Omar al-Bashir who is one by the International by the Criminal ICC. Court, the ICC right. is actually uh, uh, is actually handed over to the ICC. What he would say right. that would actually implicate, implicate these two, these two. Mm. exactly. So
0: now the, again, it, it's, it seems that in that in this aspect they are on the same side because both of them don't want. I mean, they are protecting Bashir because they don't want him to go to the ICC. Exactly. They are also worried for. Uh, you know, what might happen to them if they left power.
1: Exactly.
0: Again, my question is, like, what happens to the Sudanese, to people in Sudan right now, that these two people are dug in. They're refusing to even speak to each other. What is the situation like? Do you have family in Sudan?
1: Absolutely. What, I have what really...
0: are they saying? What is the exper- experience?
1: The situation is def- desperate. People have evacuated Khartoum completely. So of my family uh, is in Khartoum and everybody who's most, most of the evacuations and most of the fleeing has been out of Khartoum. A huge amount of the fleeing has also been out of Darfur especially Jenina. Mm-hmm. 80% of the city of Jenina in, in West Darfur has actually fled to Chad. So you can imagine the nightmare. Sudanese have fled to Ethiopia, to Egypt, to Central African Republic, even to Libya, to South Sudan. Huge numbers have, of returnees have went, have gone back home to South Sudan, and Sudanese have also gone to South Sudan.
0: When this war started we thought it was in Khartoum just you know concentrated in Khartoum how did it spread out to Jenaena, which is thousands of miles there from <laughs>
1: yes the yes capital? yes well that's 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 a really important question and absolutely the war started in Khartoum because after the revolution of 2018 and 2019 which the people's revolution the Sudanese revolution which ousted Omar al-Bashir what happened then is that during the last days of the revolution, uh, the military and the rapid support forces, both Burhan Emmi actually stepped in. They they hijacked the revolution, mm. and they they basically said oh we stand
0: with the people with the
1: people yeah. and so you had an ongoing revolution you had a sit in in front of the army headquarters where you had tens of 10s of thousands of sudanese basically camping outside putting pressure on bashir every day and 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 general the the army mm-hmm. the sudanese armed forces and the rapid forces saw this as an opportunity they saw that bashir is now a liability the international community uh, has marked him as wanted by the ICC, the the people of Sudan are don't saying want don't want him anymore, mm. the regional countries now really don't want to touch him anymore, mm. he's become a liability to everyone. Well, what do we do? We come Step in, we in. change the palace guards, mm. and we take him to prison, and that's exactly what, what and happened. And pretend
0: to be on the side of the people. And
1: pretend to be the side of the mm. people, and that's exactly what happened. And so
0: this union between these two individuals walked for a couple of years.
1: Absolutely. And uh, side by side of
0: the You know, the civilian...
1: Yes, yes. he broke
0: apart when... uh, Was it last year?
1: October October, 2021. So you you had a transitional government that was supposed to transition Sudan to a full democracy through elections. But that was cut short because the closer the deadline got to elections, then Burhan and Himiti said, oh, actually, uh, maybe we need to... (laughs) Uh, you know, to extend, to it. extend, yeah. Oh, oh, let's, let's, yeah. yeah. This is not. This is yes. We said that this was a power sharing agreement, and we signed on to a transitional government, but we didn't really mean that. So even <laughs> so there are two though colors now. In, oh yeah, they yeah. didn't come to the negotiating table in, 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 good, in, faith. in good faith. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, and this is the history of the military in Sudan. Mm. You've had cycles of 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 autocratic uh, dictators. Uh, punctuated by brief periods of democracy and brief periods of civilian rule, mm. you know, which have come through by through a revolution, and then you have another. Uh, come uh, uh, and take it away. And each one, each period of autocracy and dictatorship has been longer. So you had the first period which was about six years, the second period about eighteen years, and then mm. finally you had Omar Bashir, which he stayed in power for thirty years. Yeah. So you had another revolution. And now you can imagine the terror Mm. thinking, oh, my God, now we have Burhan and Hemiti fighting for power. How long do they expect to stay in power? I mean, we have to put an end to this nightmare.
0: Absolutely. What is the fate of the civil society groups that were responsible for ousting Bashir? What are they doing right now? What is happening to them?
1: So the the coalition that was formed was a coalition of political parties and uh, and civil society groups, and they came together with a common enemy who was al Bashir at the mm-hmm. time, and that fomented the revolution. And what's happened since then is that during the period of the transitional government, very un- this very unfortunate, but cracks. Have started to appear in this coalition, and you've had competition between different political parties. Now that you have elections coming up, each political party wants to assert it's their dominance themselves into, and wants yeah. to become the leading political party. So now they're instead of cooperating, and speaking with one voice, with right? Enemy. Now they're competing against each so other. So that
0: those are the fissures that were exploited by this. Absolutely,
1: one hundred percent. That is exactly the weakness. That the generals explore.
0: In case you're just joining us, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm speaking with Samar Salman, a Sudanese strategic analyst and president of USESA, the US educated Sudanese association. She's talking to us about some of the dynamics behind the conflict and ways that the international community can help bring an end to the conflict. Samar, what are some of your recommendations? What needs to be done to bring this conflict to an end?
1: Now we are in one of the worst wars, most violent wars in recent history. It's been described by the UN humanitarian chief as uh, the civil war, one of the most uh, atrocious civil wars. And he's saying that today, uh, this is Sudan is the toughest place on earth for humanitarian workers. It's a very difficult situation. My recommendation, and uh, those of uh, some people who I collaborate with, is that there needs to be an immediate end of to the war, and this can only come through three ways. You have to have one very strong diplomatic track where you have the entire international community mm-hmm. come together under one umbrella, one coalition, one voice, non-political. Putting aside their personal, economic, political interests and speaking as one voice, international community to say to the generals, to to basically breathe down the general's neck until they end the war. The second part of that has to be accompanied by uh, a a no-fly zone. I mean, these Enforced aerial bombardments by, by the United Nations, mm. and this has to come from the UN Security Council. Absolutely. Mm. The UN Con- Communi- C- Security Council up to now has only condemned the fighting. Uh, Secretary General António Guterres has, has said that uh, he has never seen such a large scale, rapid, rapid scale of death destruction mm. in recent history. But we have yet to see action, by the UN Security Council. So we need to see a, a no-fly zone. We need to see uh, a full arms embargo. We have a partial arms embargo in Darfur, very badly needed in Darfur. Mm. But of course... Uh, Wasn't
0: Sudan under some arms embargo? Not
1: all of Sudan. It was due to the Darfur ethnic cleansing. So it was limited just to Darfur. to 2005. So mm. it was limited to Darfur. It needs to be extended to all of Sudan. Mm. And it needs to be strictly enforced in Darfur... And across all of Sudan, so we we Darfur because of the, the the horrific history that is now repeating itself twenty years later, and the new war in 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 the center of Sudan. Mm-hmm. All of these, the, the aerial bombardment have to stop.
0: Finally, I guess I, I wanted to ask this: the the war took on ethnic dimensions. Absolutely, I want you to explain briefly what that means.
1: What that means is. We touched before on how Hamidi rose to power. Mm. Hamidi rose to power because he was a militia leader as part of Omar al-Bashir's counterinsurgency that Omar al-Bashir armed to help support the Sudanese armed forces, repress the marginalized communities that were forming rebellions in Darfur. So Hemiti became one of the leading militias that jointly with the armed forces committed the the, the war crimes and the the genocide genocide, in 2003 to 2005 in Darfur. Mm. Well, this ethnic cleansing is now being repeated in Darfur. So what you are seeing is the same... So it was called militia then, it was called the Janjaweed, and today we call it the RSF RSF, that is commanded by Hemiti. And we're seeing their forces now commit the same horrific war crimes, burning of villages, raping of women, really? mass evacuation, uh, killing. Uh, and and, the, and this senseless killing has basically uh, now taken the ethnic tribal uh, undertones mm. or overtones. I mean, it's very explicit. Mm. So you have the RSF uh, targeting the same tribes, The same hostilities that you had 20 years ago are now re-emerging. It is very scary.
0: Sama, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Sama Salman. She is a Sudanese strategic analyst and president of USESA, the U.S. Educated Sudanese Association. She joined me in studio here at The Voice of America. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. A new report argues governments in East Africa to develop the second-hand clothing market in order to foster innovation and competition in the textile industry. The report, which was commissioned by the Mitumba Consortium Association of Kenya, focuses on the second-hand clothing industry in the East African community. The study was released last week as trade ministers met in Nairobi for the 54th All-Africa Trade Ministers' Meeting of the African Continental Free Trade Area. Local textile manufacturers have often complained that importing the clothings, also known locally as Mitumba, has a negative impact on textile production in the region. Professor Patrick Diamond of Queen Mary University in the UK is the author of the report. He tells me that both the second-hand clothing sector and the local textile industry are complementary to each other. Patrick, let's talk about this uh, report that you wrote uh, about Mitumba, which is also secondhand clothing uh, in, in Kenya. Make the case for us, why is the secondhand clothing sector or industry uh, fundamental
2: to the economic and social future of the East African community? Well, I think in terms of uh, today, the world we are in today, um, it's so important because of jobs. The second-hand clothing sector, Matumba Trade, is creating and has created thousands of jobs, and it has the potential to create even more in the future. Jobs of many different kinds: jobs in the marketplaces, jobs in warehouses, jobs in distribution of the goods, jobs in terms of um, running retail spaces, an enormous number of jobs. And in a world where, after COVID, with all of the economic pressures we're facing, this is a source of new jobs, and this is very important. But I would say that also in terms of the world of tomorrow, the reason why Mutumba and second-hand clothes are so important is because they will help us to build a more sustainable economy. Um, the world is making too many things. We're making too much stuff. And actually producing new clothes is incredibly costly for the environment. It leads to the emission of greenhouse gases. It creates new climate change pressures. So if we can reuse clothing, which is becoming more and more fashionable in the West, then we can cut down on climate uh, emissions and help to build a more sustainable green economy, not just in the West, but throughout the world, including in East Africa.
0: Mm. You're also making the case that uh, textile import of uh, Chinese uh, Chinese clothing constitute a bigger, a bigger threat to the East African textile manufacturing sector, more so than the secondhand clothes
2: that are imported from the West How so yeah, so we argue in the report that if we were to ban secondhand clothing, one of the unintended consequences would be to lead to a big rise in the importation of goods from low-cost uh, from low cost va- uh, Asian producers like China, not just China. I mean, there are many other uh, countries that are importing very cheap um, textiles. So it wouldn't have the effect of reviving the domestic textile sector. That's the point that we're making. And the reason is because the domestic textile sector is weak, not because of second-hand clothes. It's weak because there hasn't been much capacity in these industries for a long time. There's a lack of skills. There's a lack of capital investment. And getting from where we are now to having a stronger domestic textile sector will take 10 to 15 years. So if you were just to ban secondhand clothing tomorrow, the likely effect is you would lead to a flood of uh, low-cost, low-value textile products coming into countries like Kenya from the Chinese market. And I think this would be detrimental to the welfare of Kenyan citizens what do you say to the
0: argument made by some in Kenya or in, East, in Africa, really, in general, who said that the, this mitumba, the second-hand clothes, uh, stifles the local textile industry?
2: Yeah, this is an argument that's been made. But if you look at the experience of countries around the world, there's very little evidence that secondhand clothing is what is stifling domestic textile production. I mean, there's no doubt that the domestic textile sector is weaker in a lot of African countries than we would like it to be. Um, But that is due to other factors like the ones I've mentioned in terms of investment, lack of skills, um, the failure to develop that sector in the long term. If government wants a strong domestic textile sector, what it needs to do is not ban secondhand clothing, but have a strong industrial policy that supports the development of domestic textile Uh, industries. uh, And that means a long-term commitment from government. So don't believe that just banning secondhand clothing is going to get you a revived domestic textile sector. It isn't. What you need to do is have, as I say, a strong industrial policy that addresses the different factors that you need in order to to, um, lead to a resurgence of of domestic uh, textile manufacturing. And we very much argue in the report that the two sectors can work together. Like secondhand clothing does not see domestic textile production as the enemy. The two, of, the two should be working together. And going back to the environmental point I was making, I think there are going to be many opportunities in the future to recycle clothing in new ways. Um, and if we can recycle clothing, this will create new opportunities for secondhand clothing producers and new domestic textile producers to work together. And I think this has very exciting potential. And how would banning the
0: second-hand clothing or the mitumba impact the local economy?
2: Well, the immediate impact would be on jobs. So there's no doubt that if you banned Mutumba tomorrow, you would um, lead, this would lead to a very sharp rise in unemployment, because you would be cutting off the goods that enable market traders and others to undertake this trade in Mutumba. Um, I think then in the longer term, it would lead to lower growth, it would lead to lower government revenues, it would have a detrimental impact across the economy. But I think the immediate impact, which you would see almost immediately in Kenyan society, would be that you would have... Um, a sharp rise in unemployment. And it would particularly affect women. Um, I would say it would also affect young people who are often the beneficiaries of the Matumba trade. So that would certainly be the immediate economic impact of the ban.
0: And um, you're right in the report that the domestic uh, textile production sector and the second-hand uh, second-clothes apparel sector are, in fact,
2: complementary. Just a point that you were making. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, so I think they're complementary partly because of the point I was making about recycling and the new technologies that are emerging. So the opportunity to reuse existing clothing in new ways, Um, secondhand clothing that comes into the country will at some point reach the end of life and need to be recycled. And that's an opportunity for new uh, domestic textile producers. But also, you know, the skills that are being used are in some ways complementary, whether you're dealing with secondhand clothes or you're dealing with new domestic textile production. Um, There's a lot of emphasis on on quality, on the kind of skills, on being able to present clothes in ways that are attractive to the consumer. Um, So in that sense, you know, whether it's marketing, whether it's design, whether it's um, cleaning and and presenting clothes so that they're attractive to shoppers, um, there are lots of ways in in which, in fact, the two sectors are very complementary. And what are some of the laws and regulations in East Africa that
0: you would uh, characterise as impediments uh, or barriers on
2: second-hand clothing businesses? Yeah, so I don't think there's anything at the moment which is a regulatory barrier to, the, to setting up uh, Matumba businesses. I would say, though, that there is a case for perhaps having more government involvement, um, creating more of a structure around, in particular, the Matumba markets. I mean, I think there is a concern in some quarters that the markets are not very well organized. There are risks in terms of security, also fire safety and so on. So I think there's a strong case for having better regulated marketplaces, which also protect um, standards for workers, because we want Matumba traders to be able to uh, deal in secondhand clothes in a way that is not going to be a threat, obviously, to their own safety or to the threat of those who are shopping in their, uh, in their markets. So yeah. I, I would say... Um, there is a strong case for having yeah, more government involvement in terms of regulating how the markets are working. And I think that would be good for the traders, but also good for the consumers and shoppers. Mm. And, and how would uh,
0: any restrictions uh, uh, on this uh, trade violate any global
2: trade agreements? Well, I've, none of this would violate global trade agreements because it's nothing to do with trying to stop the flow of goods in and out of East Africa. And... Um, Uh, i think as you inferred earlier of course one of the big problems of banning secondhand clothing would also be that you would in effect violate existing trade agreements including of course the ago agreement which would um lead to very costly penalties for countries in east africa um but what i'm proposing is nothing to do with trying to reduce the flow of free trade it's simply about having better organized markets within countries which Mm. are sort of good for the consumer and good for workers because you know, Matumba has an enormous contribution to make. But I think um, when you observe some of the markets, it's clear that um, they're perhaps not as well organized as they could be. Um, and this is perhaps an area where local government, municipalities, as well as the national government could step in just to introduce a bit more regulation to ensure that we have those standards that are so important. So this uh, report
0: is being released at the time when uh... African trade ministers are meeting in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, where was there worry on your side uh, or on, on people in this industry that uh, that they might be coming up with some of these regulations
2: uh, to either ban the importation of mitumba? Yeah, of course, there's concern because, as you uh, as you rightly say, we know that these issues are being discussed among ministers, and there is, I think, always a temptation to say that. Uh, banning secondhand clothing would be a radical solution that would lead to certain benefits like reviving domestic textiles. But, I mean, our view would be that we think we have the arguments on our side. We believe that the economic evidence suggests that banning secondhand clothing will not help the domestic textile industry. And I think ministers will in time understand and accept the evidence on that. But I would also say that I think trade ministers um, and ministers in governments will ultimately proceed cautiously because they will recognise that if they do undertake steps to weaken the the Matumba trade, this will have a very detrimental effect on jobs at a time when, as you know very well, in all countries around the world, there is more and more pressure on employment because of the economic circumstances after COVID and with all the things going on in the global economy. And I just think ministers would be very cautious about undertaking uh, measures putting in place regulations which actually damage employment at a time when we need more better jobs, particularly for young people and for women, women in our mm. society. That is Professor Patrick Diamond of Queen Mary University in England.
0: And with that, we'll come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to our guests and to you for tuning in, whether you tune in online on our website at VOAAfrica.com. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are on Facebook and on Instagram. Just search for VOA Upfront. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bunganyi in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.
2: VOA News. When news breaks, VOA News is there. Around the clock, listen to VOA newscast at the top of each hour along with our detailed news programs and analysis. We are online at voanews.com. VOA, your trusted source of news and information.